Welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, Challenging China. We're calling a spade a spade. Canada unveils its long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy today. What stance is the federal government taking on China? And how will Canada bolster its presence in the Indo-Pacific region? Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie joins us then. Staffing shortage. To respond at scale, um, given our current personnel challenges, yeah, we would be hard-pressed to do that. As Canada's military faces a staffing crisis in a world of global security threats, what is being done now to help boost personnel? How does a lack of members make Canada vulnerable at home and abroad? Chief of the Defence Staff General Wayne Eyre will be here. Plus, Trudeau testifies. What if the worst had happened in those following days? What if um, someone had gotten hurt? Testimony from the Prime Minister wraps up the historic Emergencies Act inquiry. Was the federal government justified in invoking the act to end anti-government protests? What will be the political fallout? We'll get reaction from the opposition. And then former CSIS director and national security advisor to Prime Ministers Dick Fadden joins us on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Canada's long-promised Indo-Pacific strategy is finally here. Today, the federal government is unveiling its policy, and as expected and teased by officials over the past few weeks, it includes a tougher stance on China. In its 23-page document, Canada refers to China as an increasingly disruptive global power and says it will challenge China, including when it engages in coercive behavior, economic or otherwise, and ignores human rights obligations or undermines our national security interests. The policy also outlines initiatives and investments totaling nearly $2.3 billion over five years to increase Canada's economic and strategic role in the Indo-Pacific region. The strategy comes amid allegations of Chinese interference in the 2019 federal election. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he did not learn of the claims until hearing about them in the news. And Canada's chief electoral officer, Stéphane Perrault, also said this week that he was not aware of election interference. So, is this a turning point in Canada-China relations? And how does Canada find a balance between standing firm and at the same time pursuing dialogue with China and other players in the region? Joining me now is Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Good morning, Minister. Uh, very good to have you on the show. Um, it's a pleasure, Joyce. In this policy, you use some pretty undiplomatic words about China, including, you know, let's give our viewers some examples, coercive diplomacy, non-market trade practices, forced labor. I imagine that was about the Uyghurs. China's escalating presence in the South China Sea. What do you see or what do you think the Chinese reaction will be? Well, you know, we're calling a state a state. And when it comes to our engagement with China, we're clear. This is about protecting our national interests without compromising our values. And I've said it many times, Joyce, and I'm saying it again. This is about making sure that we will compete with China when we ought to, and we will cooperate with them uh, when we must. And that includes on the question of climate change, on the question of pandemic prevention, and also non nuclear uh, non you know nuclear uh, proliferation so 
the idea is to make sure that the frame is clear. Um, and at the same time, indeed, China is going against important international norms, which creates instability, particularly in the region, but also uh, for us as a Pacific nation. So you're, you're taking sort of the same words uh, that the American uh, president used. But I want to ask you this, considering the Chinese president's angry reaction to just the publishing of a readout of a conversation he had with Justin Trudeau at the G20, this language in your Indo-Pacific strategy will likely trigger retaliation. You expecting that? This is language that is consistent with what our allies are saying. This is what uh, definitely also the Americans, but also many European countries. And uh, we have all to, we must all remember that um, back in June, NATO for the first time highlighted in its new strategic concept that, that China was an issue. So the goal of this strategy is to make sure that we really recognize that Canada is a Pacific nation. For a long time, we've been involved with, in our relationship with Europe and will continue to be, obviously, with our relationship with the U.S. Uh, when it comes to obviously our southern border, but also in the Arctic, and we'll continue to do so. But we have to look at the Pacific because that's where, uh, indeed, there are geopolitical tensions, but also that's where there is a lot of growth. Some of the most important economies and biggest growth. So we need to make sure that we step up our game, that we invest, and in this is an ambitious plan. So what I'm presenting today, the Indo-Pacific strategy, is an ambitious plan, which is a, a, for a decade-long plan. And also we're investing $2.2 billion, which is a first down payment, to make sure that we are a reliable partner in the region. Your language on China, I just want to go back to that. You must have costed what the, the possible cost, in, just in terms of trade, um, of being iced out of something. Do you have a, a price tag to standing up for those policies that are so clear in that Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, there's two uh, aspects to your question. The first one is, uh, indeed, there's $100 billion of trade between China and Canada. And my role as foreign minister is to highlight to the business community in particular that there is a geopolitical risk with doing business in China. And now it's up to them to take their own decisions. And uh, at the same time, it's up to the government to help provide solutions. And our solutions are linked to diversification within the region. Now, when it comes to engaging with China in general, well, I must say that when I was appointed foreign affairs minister, it was just after the two Michaels had come back from China after being arbitrarily detained. The diplomatic relationship at this point was rock bottom. My goal was to re-engage with China to make sure that we could have at least a conversation, which was the case. And I've been in contact with my counterpart. Now, what we're doing is this framework now is transparent. It's written down in a strategy. It is made uh, public to, to you know Canadians, to the world to China, and this is how we will engage, period. So, but in this strategy, you know, it states that Canada is, quote, concerned about the rise of coercive and irresponsible use of technology, 
the spread of disinformation, ransomware, and other cybersecurity threats. So, and, and, and you also say that Canada will take a leadership role in, in fighting uh, these threats. Could you explain that? Like, what role mm -hmm. would you have right away to counter those threats? So there's two things. First and foremost, we're putting money on the table to deal with this issue. So we're putting $150 million to make sure that we have intelligence as, uh, and, and security um, uh, forces in the region. Uh, we are also addressing the issue of cybersecurity because indeed we need to protect ourselves in the physical space, but we have to do so also in the digital space. The other thing is we're very concerned with the question of foreign interference in the digital space. And uh, back in September, uh, along with my colleague from the Netherlands, uh, Canada and the Netherlands launched um, at, on the margin of the UN General Assembly uh, an important initiative to counter disinformation online by foreign actors. We want to make sure that there is a declaration that really highlights what are the rules of the role road to deal with this. This is a, an issue that doesn't only affect Canada, it affects many democracies around the world. So I, I, I want to move to the military uh, a, a part of your, of your strategy. So part mm -hmm. of it also includes investments to increase Canada's naval presence in the Indo-Pacific region and expand existing military capacity. But our military is currently facing a staffing crisis. It is unable to meet the demands the country already has. So do you have the capability to fulfill this pledge? Well, this initiative was obviously proposed by uh, the Minister of Defense, Anita Anand, and also supported by the Chief of Defense Staff, Win Air. So indeed, it is to have a more uh, a frigate more in the region. We all already have the HMCS Vancouver, the HMCS Winnipeg. I was on the Vancouver uh, back uh, during Thanksgiving in Busan, South Korea, uh, seeing how much uh, CAF members are doing great work. They had gone through the Taiwan Strait and they were now there to support the UN Security Council motion on North Korea. So the goal is to have a third frigate uh, and my colleague will have more to say on that, but also it's to have military attaches across uh, our different embassies in the region. And Joyce, we're introducing this new concept of the North Pacific. Why? Because we know that we have NATO on our East Coast. We have NORAD for our, content, you know, our continent, so for the Arctic and also uh, for our southern border. But we need to have something more in the Pacific. The Pacific is important because many, uh, obviously because of the BC coast, but also because um, many states, including China, are positioning themselves as near Arctic states. And as climate change is have, having an impact on navigation routes in the Arctic, we need to make sure that we step up our game and, you know, at this very important part of, of, of the world, which is our neighborhood, which is an entryway, which is a gateway to the Arctic. And so working more with Japan, working more with South Korea is really important. And that's a new concept we're introducing in the strategy. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, I know you're busy. Thanks so much for joining us and have a great day. Thank you. Have a great day too. Take good care. When we come back, retention and recruitment. How can the Canadian military boost its capacity in a world of growing global threats? What vulnerabilities does a staffing crisis create? 
Chief of the Defense Staff General Wayne Eyre joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Concerns over military readiness. As the world grapples with evolving global security threats like Russia and China, is Canada ready to handle them? The Canadian Armed Forces currently have a shortfall of nearly 10,000 trained personnel in the regular force, and attrition rates for both regular and reserve forces are a combined 9.3%, up from 6.9% the year before. Meantime, we've learned this past week that Russia is once again flexing its muscle in the Arctic. Canadian military officials say Russia has started sending long-range bombers back over the Arctic towards North American airspace after a brief pause during the start of the war in Ukraine. So what immediate steps can be taken to address the staffing crisis in the Canadian Armed Forces and how does a personnel shortage make Canada vulnerable at home and abroad? Joining me now is Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre. General, welcome to Question Period. Uh, thanks for being there and also thank you for your service. Well, Joyce, thanks for having me this morning. Um, so now I want to take you back to you know, almost two weeks ago when those missiles fell in Poland on the border with Ukraine, Poland being a NATO country. Um, if the war in Europe, that was close and you know maybe a wake-up call for a lot of us. Are you ready for that? So when that happened, uh, very happy to see that NATO took a very measured approach. You know, understanding in war, uh, in fact, on all operations, first reports are often, uh, often not completely correct. And so NATO paused, took a look, gathered the, uh, gathered the intelligence, and, uh, and then responded. But make no doubt about it, um, this happened because of Russia's aggression. This happened because of Russia's um, unwarranted, brutal war of aggression in, in Ukraine. Are we ready for it? Well, collectively, NATO has come together like it has not in, in such a long time. And the, the forces that we have uh, uh, assigned to NATO, uh, mostly in the, the Northeast, up in, in Latvia, they're ready, they're focused. I visited them two months ago and the the spirit, the motivation, the laser-like focus on readiness is, is apparent. I imagine that you have scenarios. What, what is define ready for us? So readiness for me is the ability to respond at scale, so large enough, at speed, fast enough, and, and for long enough. And so there's different levels of, of readiness. The, the forces that we have over in NATO, they're ready for the tactical mission they've been assigned. I have larger concerns about our strategic readiness. Uh, there's a number of components of readiness, people, uh, equipment, uh, the ability to sustain it, and we've got challenges in all of those. You're, you're aware that our, our numbers are down. Uh, we are... We'll get to that. Yes, yes. yes we are, <laughs> uh, we're, we're challenged in some of the serviceability of our equipment. We're challenged in some of our stocks, including such things as, as ammunition stockpiles. You know, things that we've let slip over decades as we have focused on the more immediate. So you were in Afghanistan, right, where you, Canadians had a significant military role. Mm -hmm. Could you do that today? Could you repeat that kind of an operation if you needed to? So the, the war in Afghanistan, and I, I've done a couple of tours there, yeah. um, 
To repeat that with exactly the same force structure, uh, we would be challenged today. So when I talk about readiness and at scale, uh, we, we had a fairly significant um, presence on the ground. Yes, we would be challenged to, to do that again at scale. Every conflict is going to be different. Um, every conflict is going to, every operation is going to require you know, a different mix of, of capabilities. But to respond at scale, um, given our current personnel challenges, yeah, we would be hard pressed to do that. So I'm, I'm taking that's a no. That, yeah, could. that is a no. Yeah. Okay. Does that worry you? Absolutely. Um, and, and in fact, as I take a look at my focus areas, reconstituting the Canadian Armed Forces um, is right, uh, right at the top of the list, along with a number of others. But what do I mean by reconstitution? Rebuilding our strength, getting our numbers back up there, the recruiting, the, recre the, the retention, uh, the building of mid-level leaders, absolutely important because it underpins everything else that we, uh, we need to do. Why do you have a recruiting problem? I don't understand that. I mean, recruiting is something that doesn't start because there's an invasion or a war, or it's something, it's a constant in the armed forces. So we are facing the same challenge that every other industry out there is facing in terms of a really tight labor market. There's lots of choice out there. But at the same time, um, we're seeing in our society, I, I've heard it called the great resignation. Yes. As, 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 as people leave their current employment. We are not immune from that. And you, you mentioned before about your own industry facing some of the same challenges. Every other military in the West is facing the same challenge. So what are we doing about it? Well, we are streamlining our recruiting system. Um, we, we are making it much easier um, to uh, and reducing the administrative burden of, of getting in. You know, stream, streamlining the online process, streamlining medicals, the attractions piece. You know, let's face it, many Canadians are not aware of the multitude of um, occupations available in, in, in today's military. They get their, many get their information from Hollywood, uh, which is not necessarily reality as, as we all know. Uh, but given the importance of our military to our country, this is a challenge that we need all Canadians who are truly interested um, in protecting this country to be seized with. And, and we need all to, uh, to, to, to talk about the benefits of a military career and service to this country. So what is your target date to bring your numbers up to where you would feel comfortable uh, and to respond to, and we haven't even talked about, uh, about all the other threats. Mm -hmm. So what is your, your, your timeline? As quickly as possible. Um, ideally, it would have been yesterday. And so yeah. we're looking at where can we accelerate? Where can we accelerate the, the recruiting, the training? Um, optimizing our, our, our training pipeline is another challenge to make sure we've got the, uh, the trainees uh, matched up with instructors, matched up with resources at the right time so that we can shorten that period from walking in the door to being a, a trained and operationally deployable member of the Canadian Armed Forces. Okay, let me go pretty fast. Haiti. We know that the Americans, Secretary of State Blinken, Anthony Blinken, and also the Vice President have asked Canada to step up in Haiti. Um, can, can, can you do that? Well, there's got to be a diplomatic solution uh, first. Uh, military intervention by itself, uh, military police intervention by itself in the absence of a larger um, uh, political economic uh, solution is, well, we've tried that before and it hasn't worked that well. And so getting the framework, getting the context right is going to be important. 
um, you know, if asked to respond, could, could, exactly. If asked to respond, it's a balance. And so, where would we rebalance from other places in the world uh, to to make sure that we? It's 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 always a case of prioritization when you uh, deploy limited military resources. Okay, Indo-Pacific strategy, which is it came out this weekend, mm -hmm. and Canada signaling, you know, an increased presence in that region as well. Mm -hmm. So. There again, let me ask you the same question. Um, are you ready to be there for, you know, to make good on this, on this, on this strategy? Do you have the military capacity? So we will, it's always a case of prioritization and, and, and balancing um, our deployments around the globe, not just with what, uh, but when and, uh, and with who, and with our allies as well. And so the two biggest draws for capabilities that we would put into the, uh, the Indo-Pacific would be Europe. And a case in point, um, you know, recently, in fact, they're just on their, on their way back, we have two frigates uh, that are coming back from four months in, in the region. And there's been some talk about, well, you have not had a frigate in, in Europe as part of NATO for, for some time. That is true, but we put other capabilities over into Europe to, to fill a gap. Could we use more? Yeah, absolutely. But we, uh, we operate with what we have, and so we prioritize and balance uh, based on what our allies need, uh, what, the, uh, what the demand signal is, uh, to make sure that we achieve the, uh, the strategic effect that the government wants us. Well, you have a full plate there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, General Wayne Eyre. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me this morning. Coming up, emergencies end. The historic Emergencies Act inquiry is now over. Was the federal government justified in invoking the legislation to end convoy protests? And has testimony from federal ministers and the prime minister shifted the opinions of the opposition? Conservative MP Larry Brock and NDP MP Matthew Green will join us. Stay right here with Question Period. I am absolutely absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right choice in agreeing with the invocation. Six weeks of public hearings wrapped up this week with headliner and ultimate Emergencies Act decision maker, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Prime Minister told the Commission he's confident in his decision to invoke the legislation. This after a week of witnesses that peeled back the curtain on cabinet communications. Starting with CSIS director David Vigneault, who said he advised the government to invoke the act, plus hours of testimony from key government officials, including seven cabinet ministers. From public safety minister Marco Mendicino, the commission heard there were heightened security concerns from several MPs leading up to the protests. And deputy prime minister and finance minister Christian Freeland said she considered the economic threat of the protests and blockades to be a security threat. So, did this final week of testimony move the needle for the opposition in determining whether the act was needed? Joining me now are Conservative MP Larry Brock and NDP MP Matthew Green. Both are members of the Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of Emergency. Matthew, Larry, welcome to Question Period. Happy Sunday. Um, Larry, I'll start with you. Uh, CSIS Director uh, Mr. Vigneault said he advised the Prime Minister to invoke the act. 
Did hearing that change your opinion on whether or not the threshold was met to invoke the Emergencies Act? Well, firstly, uh, good morning, uh, Joyce, and thank you very much for participating on your show. Uh, to answer your question as succinctly as possible, it did not uh, change my opinion as to whether or not there were legal grounds to invoke this particular uh, act. Uh, Mr. Vigneault testified at our special joint committee and made it abundantly clear, as he did in various other television programs and through the media, that what constituted uh, an emergency, a national emergency under the CSIS Act, did not apply to the uh, Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. So for the first time, we heard a different spin on that, that notwithstanding his direction uh, to Cabinet and the Prime Minister that it did not meet the definition under the CSIS Act, he nevertheless uh, endorsed and promoted the invocation of the Act. But there is a but to this that was based on a legal opinion that he reviewed that legal opinion, of course, being prepared by the Department of Justice, headed up by our Minister of Justice and the Attorney General, Minister Lametti. So it really begs the question as to what was contained within that legal opinion, and ultimately is that legal opinion that I think is going to form the basis of Justice Rulo's uh, ultimate conclusions at the end of this commission, and it will certainly aid us in the pursuit of the truth at our special committee. So, Matthew, the NDP voted in favor of, of uh, invoking the act, and, and, and Jagmeet Singh on this same program said he would support the Prime Minister no matter what uh, uh, Justice Rulo would decide. So, when you've, you've heard all this testimony, we've heard from just about everybody, do you stand by that? Do you think that your party did the right thing? Uh, given the information that was made publicly available, I think what you're hearing uh, and the complexities that Larry is talking about is a scenario where while the threshold under the CSIS Act, the legal and technical thresholds may or may not have been met. That's not for us to decide. That ultimately will be for the Commission to decide. There was a practical failure in policing. There was a collapse of our public safety institutions that led to a protracted occupation of our nation's capital, the discovery of weapons at Coots, and blockades across our critical infrastructures and border crossings. So uh, absolutely, I think, in given the information that we had made available at the time, the decision was the right one to have. And I think what we're unpacking in these months afterwards is trying to figure out whether or not the Emergency Act, as it's legislated, could have contemplated this type of wholesale failure of policing. So let me ask you this. Uh, there, there have been calls to update the Emergencies Act and or the CSIS Act to better reflect, you know, sort of current realities. You're addressing that right now. Would I you am. like to see one of those, one of those two uh, pieces of legislation then adapted to, you know, the 21st century? Well, we already have precedent, uh, Joyce, uh, back on the, uh, the 42nd Parliament under uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, the CSIS Act under Bill C-59, in fact, was amended. So there is precedent for governments, obviously, to amend pieces of legislation to reflect the realities of, of modern-day society. And I think it's appropriate for a government to always take that approach. Now, there is a particular reason why the Emergencies Act has not been used. It obviously has not been used for a significant period of time uh, since it was created uh, back in the uh, 1980s. 
But I think it does give the government uh, an opportunity to uh, to certainly amend it, to, to give it in terms of greater statutory and legal authority to reflect circumstances that existed uh, in Ottawa in January and February. But that has to be done through a legal process through the House of Commons. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking that, that answer as a, as a yes. Uh, uh, Matthew Green, do you think it needs to be updated? Because as Larry Brock was saying, this is a, this sort of was created in the 80s, different realities right. today. Does it need to be updated? Is that something that Parliament should do? Well, I think we're actually actively in that process of debating it through our joint parliamentary review committee. It's one that I, I sit on with my friend Larry and members of the Senate, and we are certainly um, going to be accepting the testimonies and evidence of the Rouleau Commission, but also we've been at this for about six months now, and we've been going through this, and I think the bulk of our work, the seriousness of our work is gonna be about providing recommendations back to the House of Commons and the Senate to ensure ultimately, I think this is a nonpartisan statement to make, ultimately that we don't end up back in this situation that the Emergency Act, as contemplated by the Honorable Parent Beattie, be uh, updated and be revisited in a way that has clear definitions, that has very distinct and clear thresholds of responsibility through the different levels of government. You'll, you have, would have heard in testimony, of course, over this last week that there was a breakdown in communication between the federal and provincial levels of government. Of course, we have already heard that in testimony in the breakdown in communication between the RCMP, the OPP, and the OPS. There was no functional operational plan that would have provided law and order in a moment, in a historic moment of chaos within our country. That would be interesting because extraordinary, it was an extraordinary six weeks, unprecedented in Canada. We're expecting Rouleau's decision in a few months. Larry Brock, Matthew Green, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joyce. Still to come, a climate first. The federal government has released its first and long-awaited national adaptation strategy to help deal with the risks of climate change. Does it take the right approach and what political challenges is the government facing on the issue? Halifax Mayor Mike Savage joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question P. A boost in the climate change fight. After it was promised nearly two years ago, the federal government unveiled its first ever national adaptation strategy this week, aimed at protecting against the devastating impacts of climate change. The high-level document announced $1.6 billion over five years in new funding to help with the work that needs to be done, but it's far below what some say is actually needed. According to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, the funding required to address the issue is estimated at $5.3 billion per year. The strategy also sets ambitious targets, including eliminating deaths due to extreme heat waves by 2040. So, does the strategy commit enough funding to deal with climate adaptation, and can the federal government meet its goals when it has yet to hit any of its emission targets. The Scrum is here to answer that. Tonda McCharles is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Halifax Mayor and head of the Canadian Federation of Municipalities Big City Mayor's Caucus, Mike Savage. Mayor Savage, uh, welcome uh, to Question Period. I, I want to ask you about this, uh, this strategy. Um, your region, you know, was hit by Fiona. You understand that better than most. 
What do you need from this strategy and uh, how do you get the money? We welcome the strategy, first of all. Um, I think it's a significant um, piece of work. There's more to come, of course. But yeah, we, on the East Coast, uh, we have been hit by more and more weather events, hurricanes uh, in our case, hurricanes that used to die out before they got here because the water was colder, but the water is warming. And so we're getting Fiona, we had Dorian, we've had other uh, hurricanes in the last number of years. They're more frequent. They're not once in every 20 years. They seem to be once every you know, two years now. So we have to be prepared for that impact. And we all have a role to play. And certainly the federal government um, uh, needs to be involved in this. And, and the adaptation piece of, of this, there's mitigation and adaptation in the fight against climate change. We need both. And we've been waiting for an adaptation strategy for some time. And uh, we think this is a really good start, particularly because it recognizes the key role that municipalities play uh, in the fight against climate change. Tonda, is the, is, the, is the federal government working too slowly here? Should this, you know, have been a strategy implemented maybe two years ago, knowing that this is coming up and it's also not enough money? You know, we've been hearing about the federal government needing to come up with ways to adapt and mitigate for climate change pretty much for about, what, maybe two decades? Um, and so this is a very long time in coming. Uh, my question, I guess, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about the value of a paper like that. It's a hard slog to read. And uh, like the mayor said, I think a lot of the actual decisions where, you know, on building, you know, how you build and where you build and how you adapt for climate change belong to other levels of government. Um, if the federal government is prepared to put money behind it, great, except it doesn't seem like it's enough money yet. Uh, but I, I think the question, you know, becomes, you know, to what extent even any strategy like this or any of the, that money, the, committed, the commitment to that money, will sustain itself through another level of government. I think that, you know, we know that the Conservatives are very skeptical about spending uh, oodles of money on, you know, uh, big ideas on, on how to anticipate when they really want to move the economy along on things like pipelines and oil and gas. So, you know, I, I wonder where the, this goes, say, in, you know, the next 10 years. So there was so much more money needed. We know that. It's one point, what, six billion dollars over mm -hmm. five years. And what we hear is five billion dollars a year would be needed in order to be able to implement all these, all these measures. Is this just window dressing? I don't, I don't think it is from the sense of the feedback we saw from climate groups, from the insurance lobby, from insurance groups saying that this was a necessary step. Obviously, municipalities are part of provinces too. So I think the feds are showing some of the money and maybe looking for some partners to help out. But certainly when you look to Prince Edward Island, for example, and the erosion that came after that last hurricane, you immediately see how important this work is. And so part of it I think is also that there's a different level of understanding of how serious this is, depending on where you live in Canada and what you've experienced. But when you look at our two coasts, it's more than clear that it's needed and it might actually be a place where the Conservatives could get on board because it doesn't have that sensitivity around restricting oil and gas. It's about how we adapt to the fact that emissions have already changed the world. Uh, Mayor Savage, we know that when this money is announced, it moves slowly uh, towards whatever project is needed um, and very slowly when it's levels of government. When are you hoping that something can happen and some money could land in some project that will help? Well, we have specific needs in Halifax, which we've outlined in our Halifax Climate Plan, uh, which uh, Council has unanimously endorsed. Um, 
which our staff led by Shannon Miedema have done amazing work on. We, we're funding it too, you know. We've, we put a levy on property taxes last year to fund specific climate action. Um, and so it's a, it's a big move for a city like Halifax. And in terms of the amount of money, Joyce, I mean, is it enough? You know, do we have enough money in healthcare? Do we have enough money in housing? Um, you know, what is enough and how do you get to enough on anything? And there, there are no issues on which everybody is unanimous. But on the issue of climate, we have to stop arguing about whether stupid things like, you know, has the climate change, uh, is it, is it man-made? You know, I tell people now when they ask, you know, is climate change real? I, I say, stick your head out the window. You know, I'm not, I'm not spending time arguing about the science anymore. We know that it's impacting us. We see the evidence of it, not just in hurricanes, but in volatile winter weather and the extreme heat out west, the drought on the prairies and everything else that we've seen in this country. Climate change is going to make life worse. And if we don't invest in it now, then it's not going to get better. And I think that we can look on projects such as this that the feds have announced and say, look, sure, there's more to be done, but we need the provinces to come to the table. And what I like about this is that it, part of this is directly to municipalities saying, we know that you know what you need. We'll help you with that. And I think a lot can come from that. Well, it'll be interesting to follow up on this. Halifax Mayor Mike Savage, thanks so much for joining us. And Ton and Marika will stay right here with us. When we come back, convoy conclusion. The six weeks of hearings into the government's use of the Emergencies Act wrapped this week. But it's raised questions about whether CSIS should update its definition for national security threats. What could such changes look like? Former CSIS director Dick Fadden joins the Scrum next. Stay right here with Question Period. Commission Conclusion. The public inquiry looking into the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act has wrapped its six weeks of testimony with no shortage of revelations from high-ranking government officials, including the Prime Minister and seven members of his cabinet this week. Also headlining at the hearings this week was CSIS Director David Vigneault, who said he did not believe the protests constituted a national security threat under the CSIS Act, but he still advised the Prime Minister to invoke the Emergencies Act to dismantle the demonstrations. So, did the public inquiry answer the questions it needed to answer? And should CSIS update its definition of a national security threat to better reflect current realities? The Scrum is here to answer that. Tana McCharles is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail, and our special guest this round is former CSIS director and national security advisor to two prime ministers, Dick Fadden. Welcome morning. back. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, uh, good morning Dick Fadden. I'm going to start with you. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this definition of what constitutes a security threat or a national security threat that was talked about a lot. Is it too old a definition? Is it not applicable anymore today? I think it really isn't applicable today, even for CSIS's purposes, because the environment in which CSIS operates has changed a great deal since 85. I would argue that what the government should do after all this is over is take the Emergencies Act and insert any definitions that it needs for the purposes of the Emergencies Act in the Emergencies Act and not reference a relatively narrow definition which is appropriate for a security agency. I mean, I think the purposes are really quite distinct. And as I understand it, when Parliament enacted the Emergencies Act, they sort of grabbed the CSIS definition because they didn't have anything else. But 
having said that, I would argue, I was saying to Tonda before we got together, that the Interpretation Act says that you're supposed to look at all this legislation in a fair, open, and liberal manner. And the, you know, black letter lawyers and the constitutional lawyers have been doing anything but that. So I have some sympathy with the views of the government that they're interpreting things so narrowly that they make it different, they make it difficult to uh, actually invoke the Emergencies Act, but they definitely need a change. Listen, I mean, it was invoked for the first time ever, and it's a 34-year-old law. Um, so yeah, I could use maybe a little bit of a facelift. Tonda, you guys uh, spent six weeks at the commission, and what's interesting is, yes, we heard the testimony, but those documents, those emails, those text messages, uh, you know, some rude language, which, mm. you know, was, was, what story did those documents tell about what was going on in the background? So those, all of the documents told a fascinating story of police disorganization, infighting and dysfunction, of interprovincial and intergovernmental uh, chaos and confusion, and also sort of the slow burn that was going on in the minds of many of the cabinet ministers federally about how uh, the chaos of the blockades and the convoy protests became a crisis in their mind. And so the, 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 we, you know, we saw amazing uh, revelations of, uh, of the tensions that were there and how people were interpreting things differently. And to my mind, one of the interesting things was that every one of these cabinet ministers and the prime minister actually took a different view of what the tipping point for the crisis was. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And that the prime minister at the end of the day, I think, uh, tell, t t in telling us that right up until the last minute, he really actually was still considering and weighing in his mind whether or not this, was th this thing was needed, an amazing story. What, yeah, what struck you, uh, Marika, because I know you went through those documents as well. I think adding to what Tonda says, it's, it's showing sort of in real time from those text messages the pressures they were under mm -hmm. and also a reminder that they were also living in particular the protests in Ottawa because so many of them lived downtown. And I think in particular for David Lametti, it seemed that that yeah. really had yeah. an impact on his own policy thinking that his personal experience in the protests, how he and his staff experienced, really informed the seriousness with which he viewed this and the threats with which he viewed this. The fact that he was thinking about the Emergencies Act truly days into it before police even said there was no policing solution. So I think that is very revealing, the pressure that Christian Freeland was under from bank CEOs, the pressure that Marco Mendicino was feeling from the conversation he had with Brenda Lucky on the day before they invoked the act. There's all these different things that are kind of being woven together. But the question still remains, when, for example, Tonda and Alex reported that the OPP said there was no credible security threat, how is it that the OPP have that perspective and the federal cabinet has the perspective that there is a s potential threat for serious violence? I think there are still so many questions about the communication yeah. breakdowns that led to that. So I want to ask you that. Um, some, some of these officials thought there was a threat. Some didn't think there was a threat. What would, and you said that you would have advised and said, yes, there is mm -hmm. an issue. What would you have based your opinion on? Because there were very different factors that were kind of subjective. No, I think that's right. But just to the point that my two colleagues have been making, it's a good illustration of how, of how actually government is messy. Yes. <laughs> and it's something, yes, it's something that people don't talk about. Mm -hmm. And there's a fog of information and intelligence, and it's actually difficult to sort out. 
I mean, I felt it difficult, and I was providing intelligence for part of my career. But if you're a minister getting all of this, it mm -hmm. really is not simple. The reason I thought that they were justified in invoking the act was not just because of the people down here on Wellington Street, but because of the apprehension of violence. And the C even the CSIS Act definition says not just violence, but the threat of violence. There was a threat of violence in Coots. There was the worry that there might be arms here. There were two or three other points of entry into Canada. So if you take everything in the aggregate and you interpret the statute liberally and you actually worry, as the Prime Minister says, about things that may happen, you want to have avoid happening, I think on balance they made a reasonable decision. Absolutely. So I want to ask you guys, because the Prime Minister testified on Friday, mm. did he make his case? Did, mm. did, did people walk away saying, yeah, okay, that made sense, I think he was right? I think we'll know that a little bit later. Um, well, I, I, a few things. There was some interesting polling done during the inquiry that shows that Canadians, six in ten Canadians are paying close attention. And that of those people, their views actually have shifted somewhat. Those who, yeah, people have, the approval of what the government did has risen and the disapproval of what the government did has dropped by five basis points. So that's a lot. That's a lot of movement in public opinion as a result of this inquiry. One of my takeaways from the inquiry is not just that there are a lot of people that think both those laws need to be rewritten yeah. to deal with the modern threats, but the other thing is just how fragile some of the institutions that are set up to protect us really are. It's messy and they're the flawed people leading them and the internal tensions really affected the security of the country. Last word to you, I, Mary Jane. Yeah, I, I think there's lots of questions, for example, about the fact that the Prime Minister appointed Brenda Lucky, who he and many of his cabinet ministers and top advisors repeatedly threw under the bus, repeatedly discredited at the testimony. Clearly, her advice appeared to be inadequate from their perspective. But I, I think to your point on interpreting the act liberally, you know, some people might be snorting up their coffee on yes. Sunday morning because many people don't think that act should be mm -hmm. interpreted liberally because it is so powerful. And so no matter what the government did, it was going to be setting a precedent in invoking the act yes. because it is a first. And so I think that's why it's so important to hear what Justice Rulo says and to have his way in on what was appropriate, what was reasonable. And that will be really fascinating what is it in february right, right. we're expecting 20th, it 23rd. yeah mm -hmm. i'm sure we'll all be reading that document <laughs> marika walsh tonda mccharles dick fadden thanks so much for being here that's question period for this week thanks for tuning in and enjoy your sunday we'll be back here in seven short days